friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we are keeping you, our dear listeners, in prayer this Holy Week as we enter into Tritium and await the joy of Easter. We'll be talking later on in the show with Archbishop Nauman wrote a wonderful piece in The Leaven, which is a newspaper of the Archdiocese of Kansas City. If you'd like to read it, I highly recommend it. It's a response um, to what we've been seeing in the Synod of Synodality that the Church is going through, and the way that the Synod is uh, giving a voice and a platform to those people in the church who think that our religion, and specifically our religion's sexual mores, the ideas around sexuality and chastity, that um, that our religion is now exclusionary. But first, we are very proud and honored to have Dr. Peter Kraft with us. He's a philosophy professor at Boston College and a world-renowned author. He has a new series of books out now on Word on Fire called Socrates Children. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kraft. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. A couple months ago, in one of my many emails I get from Word on Fire, a beautiful project from Bishop Barron, I heard about this uh, project of yours. It's a set of books called Socrates' Children. It's four books, and it's an introduction to philosophy from the 100 greatest philosophers. Now, Dr. Crave, you don't know me, but I'm a medical doctor. I don't have a degree in philosophy. A, a great a sadness of mine is that I didn't have a chance when I was in college and in graduate school because I was studying the natural sciences. I wasn't able to study philosophy as, as I wish now that I had. So I, I bought the books. I'm very excited to get this uh, wonderful overview that, that you promised. So tell us, Dr. Kraft, why you wrote um, these books and what you hope to accomplish. Well, first of all, I think philosophy is terribly important. Uh, one's philosophy of life uh, guides one's life. We all have a philosophy. If we say we don't want a philosophy, that's a philosophy, a bad one. So we all have one, but it's hardly taught anymore. Only 4% of all American colleges and universities require any philosophy at all. And the best way to learn philosophy is from the great philosophers. So I picked what I thought were the 100 greatest minds of all time and tried to introduce them to intelligent beginners. Thus, it took four volumes. It, it's not a, a, a terribly scholarly book, not mainly for researchers, for those who think that philosophy is a very specialized study. It's for ordinary people who want to know the meaning of life. So someone like me who thinks a lot and, and likes to read and but doesn't have a real grounding, a real grounding in that conversation, right? It's a kind of conversation across across the ages between right. between right. men and women un, who think. Unlike the sciences, philosophy does not specialize. It, mm -hmm. it, it generalizes. It uh, talks about the meaning of the whole thing. Each of the sciences specializes in, in some aspect of life or some act of some aspect of the human being, the philosophy tries to integrate them all. And you've divided this book into this uh, work into four books. And I think the, the first one is the, the ancient philosophers. And then after that would be the medieval philosophers. And then the moderns and then the contemporaries. Because ah, okay. history, studying philosophy historically is much more interesting and more dramatic than systematically. Most textbooks specialize in, in problems and puzzles, and there's a place for that. But life is a story, a drama, a narrative. So is the Bible, and so is the history of human thought and the history of philosophy. So this is a much more winsome and engaging way of learning philosophy, I think, to look at the great conversation, which has gone on since Socrates, who's the great grandfather of all philosophers. So when, young, when the few people when, who do study philosophy, the young people who study philosophy, the small percentage, when they do study it, and I've seen my young, I have five children at various stages of growth, <laughs> academic growth, and, and I see them study, and, and many times it's what you say, right? They, they, they study like a moral conundrum, and they say, well, Kant would have said this, and hey, that and, and Nietzsche would have taken this approach. But you're saying that it's and it's it's a more winsome and appealing way to study it as sort of as a long running commentary, right? From from people's minds. 
Yes, that's because we're living in that kind of thing, a, a story, a narrative. Life is not a puzzle to be solved. It's a mystery to be enjoyed and explored. And you, um, you called it Socrates' children. Why do you focus on Socrates and start from there? Why is he so important? He's the first philosopher who really understood the power of human reason to look at the concrete, real, existential human problems of, of life. The so-called philosophers before him, the pre-Socratic philosophers, were basically amateur scientists who were interested in nature and how it works. But Socrates was much more interested in human beings, in morality and ethics and values and, and purposes. Uh, and uh, Socrates is to Greek philosophy almost what Jesus is to Christianity in that almost every school of ancient philosophy claimed to be the true inheritors of Socrates. The one exception was the Epicureans who were hedonists, materialists, atheists, and skeptics. You're talking, of course, Western philosophy. Do you include in your books anything Eastern, for instance? Or outside of that Western stream? Yes, I do. In uh, in the beginning, chapter on the great sages, including uh, Confucius and Lao Tzu and Buddha and uh, Shankara, the great Hindu philosopher, uh, very briefly, yes, because uh, we can learn a lot from them. Yes, of course. And um, doctor, okay, let me ask you a very basic question. If somebody, if a young person asked you, why should I study philosophy? What is it going to do for me? And what am I going to learn? What would be your answer? It would be Socrates' answer. Know thyself. Mm. Uh, no matter what else you know, you're involved in that. So if you don't know who it is that's knowing all this stuff, you, you don't really know all this stuff. And as, as Christians, this is, a, this is a Catholic show on EWTN. <laughs> as Christians, why is it important for us to get this this big picture narrative of, of philosophy? Why is, it, why is it important for us not to simply read our Bible? The fundamental reason is because God created us in his own image. So we have something holy in us. Thomas Aquinas says to, uh, to scorn reason is to scorn God because he is the archetype of reason and the giver of it. So know thyself. Know the way your mind operates. Know the, the context in which, in which you live, right? The narratives yeah. that you're moving amongst and then be able to, to discern, right, what you should do moment to moment. Yes, and there's no formula for that. Uh, philosophy is messy. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's like ordinary light. It's all over the place. The power of science is that it's like laser light. It concentrates, uh, and that's a wonderful thing. But uh, you don't see the big picture in any of the sciences, as you do in philosophy. One thing that I, that I perceive in my relative ignorance of philosophy is that many things that um, trouble us today are things that philosophy has dealt with in the past. But they are new iterations or new faces to the to the same old problems. Is that something that that can be helped by reading um, this history of philosophy, even though it's light, but or it doesn't delve deep in each section, but it gives us this uh, uh, wonderful overview? Yes, first of all, it gives us a sense of perspective mm -hmm. uh, and where we are in the great story. Uh, and secondly, we see that uh, positions that oppose each other today opposed each other in the past too. For instance, Socrates' great enemies in Athens were the sophists. And the sophists are almost identical with the so-called woke people who are skeptical and relativistic uh, and deny that there is a human nature or a god or an objective moral law or even objective truth. So that's not a new idea. And to recognize that uh, it has been dealt with before in the past is, is very helpful. It gives you a, a sense of perspective. Well, doctor, you, broke up, you brought up the, the word woke, and that's a very, people are um, have trouble defining that. Exactly. So that's that's one part of the definition, right? A moral relativist and a skeptic and a cynic. But is that how a woke person would define themselves? Don't they think that they have a very um, complicated and important set of beliefs and, and a philosophy of life? Everybody has a set of beliefs, but the philosophically aware people in, in woke progressivism deny there is such a thing as a universal human nature, mm -hmm. which is why if you want to change your sexual identity, you can. You're you are your own God. The lie that commencement speakers tell us that you can be whatever you want to be, that has become extremely popular. Yes. Yes, and it and it leaves people in, in, a, in a very um, an uncomfortable position, right, of too many choices, which aren't many of them aren't real choices at all. Well, one of the most practical principles that uh, Jesus taught is, by your fruits you shall know them. Look what happens when you believe and practice a certain philosophy. Does your life get better? Do you get happier? Do you get wiser? Are you more peaceful? Or is it exactly the opposite? Basically, St. Ignatius is a very practical principle of discerning the spirits of, of good and evil. Goodness gives you a kind of consolation, a kind of deep inner peace. 
uh, and evil gives you desolation, a kind of deep loneliness and agony. Oh, and disunion, right? And chaos. Mm-hmm. And, and an inability to form bonds and, and keep those bonds healthy, in my, in my experience, anyway. And the inability to listen to other people, mm-hmm. to, if you're open to other people. Uh, the inability to form a true community. And the result is uh, loneliness, which is a terrible thing. Yes, loneliness. There's a lot of loneliness um, happening now. And, and we've seen some catastrophic uh, statistics, right, of uh, people who've lost all, all hope and are and falling into despair. Rate. The suicide the rate, suicide exactly. The suicide rate among the young is is is, is horrible. Uh, there's never been anything like this in the history of civilization. And yet people live better these days than people have ever lived on many on many <laughs> metrics, correct? Better, yes. They they have more money and power. Mm-hmm. They don't have happiness, they don't have peace, they don't have holiness. Uh, they don't have wisdom, but they have money and power. And of course, that's all that counts. You know that. But there's a there's a general belief that if we could save everyone from material want, that if people had their all their material needs met and even had a little extra on the side, that there would be happiness. Because what well, makes us unhappy is is this is is need and want. Let me tell you something about this. I just discovered that the United Nations every year. Uh, evaluates the happiness level of the different countries of the world. And every year, the same five countries turn out to be the happiest, the five Scandinavian countries. And the countries that are the unhappiest are always countries in Africa, especially sub-Saharan Africa. When I heard that, I thought this was a joke because the clearest indication of happiness is a smile. Even a baby who can't speak (laughs) knows that a smile means happiness. Who smiles the most? Africans. They're poor, but they have a kind of exuberant joy. Who smiles the least? Scandinavians. Yes. (laughs) And the most... uh, clear indication of unhappiness is suicide. Yes. No one who is happy commits suicide. Where is the suicide rate the highest? In Northern Europe, especially Scandinavia. Where is it the lowest? In poor countries like Africa. Mm-hmm. So I thought this was a joke, but it wasn't. These so-called experts define happiness by the amount of money in your bank account and the amount of services your government provides. Really? Uh, which, which, which is, I think, literally insane to say that someone who is so lonely that they commit suicide must be happy because they're living in uh, in Finland instead of uh, Zimbabwe <laughs> uh, is arrogant, racist, and uh, uh, absolutely indefensible. It's, well, it's and crazy. out of touch, and out of touch, right, with human with human nature, with the human spirit. But of course, our experts know better than we do. Yes, that seems uh, to be the truth. Common these days. sense has no standing anymore. <laughs> You know, Dr. Kraft, you are a teacher, and you get a bump, you get a new crop of students every year. I suppose. I suppose you teach undergraduates, not just graduate right. students. Okay. Right. So you see these young people come to Boston College. It's it's a it's it's a very prestigious institution, and the students who go there have to be very smart to get in, and mm-hmm. and have to have studied very hard throughout their years in high school and before. Can these young people think when they get to you? Do they know how to think? And I, let me let me let me presuppose that first by saying. I often ask my my 15-year-old, she's my youngest, and she's in high school, and and she'll tell me, oh, mom, yeah, she's in a Catholic school, but she'll say, mom, I don't know, that girl is not pro-life. And I say, but why isn't she pro-life? And she says, because she doesn't think, mom. She simply doesn't think. And that's always her answer when when we talk about why Mm -hmm. her friends don't have the right considered opinions. Is this what you find with with your students? Yes, I do. Students today in secular schools are not told how to think, they're told what to think. We know instinctively how to think. We're made in God's image, and God is total intelligence. So we have uh, the capacity, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, to think logically. We know when something is proved and when something is not proved. Uh, But we ignore that. Modern, fashionable philosophies believe that uh, there is no such thing as stable human nature, objective truth. Uh, the laws of logic, it's all a social construct. Our will is uh, is supreme rather than our, our reason. Uh, and if we believe that, we're not going to listen to our reason, our logic, our common sense, and our sanity. But it's there. It, it's like an unused weapon. And, and when not... the students discover it, discover that weapon, they're thrilled. They are, right? They can see themselves flower and bloom. They can feel that. Yes, indeed. And, and do you find them suddenly, when they learn to when you're watching them learn to think, do you find them open to the truth, to the idea that there is a truth that, that their minds can access? Most of them, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are exceptions. But uh, human nature was not designed at Harvard, thank God, or in Hollywood. <laughs> it was designed in heaven. Chesterton says the human mind is a machine for coming to conclusions. I like that phrase because I think m- the young people that I know, most of the young people I know, they're afraid to come to conclusions because, it, I mean, they, they just would rather just take the conclusions that are out there that are being told to them. 
Yeah, and that's not a philosophy. That's that's an attitude. Describe it emotional, volitional. It's not a rational attitude. Mm-hmm. If, if something's proved to be true, then it's got to be true, and you've got to take account of it, no matter how politically incorrect it may be. Mm-hmm. And many now, of the- you find that you find that on both sides. I mean, there are extremists on the right, on the left, uh, almost everywhere, who ignore ordinary reason and simply aren't open to to a change of mind. They're ideologically programmed. That's their identity. That has to be opened up. And that's the good thing about Socrates. He questions everything. Mm-hmm. Dr. your second book is on medieval philosophers. And there's one philosopher that I've tried to read many times, and it's too much for me, <laughs> for my, my poor intellect. And that's St. Thomas, Saint Thomas, Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas. Yes. <laughs> so Thomas I'm hoping... Aquinas is really a very easy philosopher to understand once you understand his terminology. He uses some highly abstract technical language from Aristotle. And once you learn the language, once you translate uh, uh, those technical terms into ordinary English, he's very simple, straightforward, wastes no words, comes right to the point. Uh, It's amazing how people suddenly realize that Thomas Aquinas is much less difficult than they think. And is your your book and your section on St. Thomas Aquinas something that could help me understand his language? As an introduction, yes. Mm -hmm. I also wrote a book, Summa of the Summa, which is the important passages in the 4,000-page-long Summa Theologica, explained and footnoted. And I thought this would be mainly for uh, college students and professors, but I'm getting a lot of letters from ordinary people who say, I'm amazed that you make Thomas Aquinas intelligible. Uh, and my reply is, I don't make him intelligible. He is intelligible. <laughs> yes. And the, um, I've, I've heard from many people who were who are more successful than I reading St. Thomas Aquinas that, they, that he was the cause of their conversion. I've heard this from many, many people. Why does St. Thomas have that, that power over people's minds? He's simply lucid. He's simply rational. I was a Thomas long before I became a Catholic. I discovered him in college. Oh, you too? Yes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good Protestants who are Thomas, who admire Thomas as the greatest uh, theologian, maybe even the greatest philosopher of all time. Yeah, His mind is simply brilliant. It's like sunlight. He just clar- he opens, opens all the doors, right, that are shut in our heads. And he's not a rationalist because he, he declared all of his works to be nothing but straw compared with the, uh, the vision of God that he had towards the end of his life when he stopped writing. Many of the, I think many of the things that we see around us in today's uh, somewhat dystopian culture that we are living in, they, a lot of the, 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 the seeds of that were sown during the, maybe in your third book, in, your, in, the, in, the, modern, in the modern era. Do you think that's true, that maybe the ideas mm-hmm. of the enlightenment, of, self, of, of radical individualism and, and self-realization, could, is, is, that, is that covered in, your, in book three? Yes, I think modernity is basically three crises, the crisis of faith, also a crisis of, of, of faith in human reason, and the crisis of, of the marriage between faith and reason. That was the essence of, of medieval thought. It's like we had a, a, a stable, happy marriage for a thousand years, and then, then Romeo and Juliet divorced, and Juliet hates Romeo, and Lo- Romeo hates Juliet. That's where we are now. Mm-hmm. We've got to get those two partners back together. Reason and faith are both instruments from God, and they, they ultimately can't contradict each other. For instance, the standard narrative about modern history is that it's the war between science and religion. Well, that is absolutely ridiculous, because a war has casualties. There is not a single religious doctrine that has been refuted by a single discovery in a single science in all of human history. So they don't, they're not really at battle with each other at all, right? Of course not. Truth cannot contradict truth. And God's the author of all truth. All truth is his. People ask me sometimes as a scientist, I mean, I guess I'm a kind of scientist, being a doctor, they ask me, how can, I've been asked, how can you believe in God? How can your faith be like that if, if you're steeped in science? And, and I always say, well, science is the, science is the, 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 the looking, the looking at deep, I'm a radiologist, so I look at things, it's, it's the looking at the creation of God, it's the understanding of it. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, it tells us so much about the Creator, in fact. The more of you course. look at His creation, the more you know the Creator. Of course. The better you understand the art, the more you understand the artist, and vice versa. A lot of, a lot of young people I know, they, they like to read Nietzsche and Kant and Hegel in them, and then they get caught in that. Uh, to me, it seems like a dark place, uh, play, the, the place of dialectic and the place of... Uh, well, uh, Kant has some good things, especially in his ethics. Uh, his basic theory of knowledge, I think, is very flawed. He denied 
that there is such a thing as, as objective truth, knowable truth. You can't know things in themselves. Uh, but he's a, uh, basically a good, pious, uh, well-intentioned person. Mm-hmm. Hegel is uh, a bit of a, a rationalist. He's a pantheist. Uh, he basically identifies God with the creation. But he's, he's at least honest and intelligent and argues. Nietzsche is another matter. Nietzsche is uh, the enemy, uh, the avowed enemy of Christianity, which he calls the synthesis of all errors, and also of Socrates. He says that uh, logical reason is, is, is basically God without a face, the nature of God. Uh, he, he, here's his argument against the existence of God. If there were a God, how could I bear not to be God? Consequently, there is no God. Wow, that's very that self-self. Uh, <laughs> that is a uh, a very very dark philosophy. That is very dark. Uh, guess 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 what main figure in the 20th century adored and admired Nietzsche? Oh, Adolf Hitler. Yes. You know, I tried to tell that to my nephew the other day. He's going through a bit. He's a 25 year old, very smart boy, but didn't get a lot of good teaching at school. I, he, he's very into Nietzsche right now. And I said, you know, I believe that book leads straight to the gas chambers. He was very scandalized. <laughs> Of course, he's scandalized. He was, uh, uh, he was, he's been propagandized. Mm-hmm. Why, why do young men like Nietzsche so much? Because d- does it um, indicate for them some sort of power inside he's, of them? He's exciting. He's passionate. He's masculine. He's masculine, right? There's we've, something we've very become masculine. We've demasculinized as well as defeminized. Currently. Yes. Well, there, there's a whole other wonderful question to ask you. Why have I'm really? There's a crisis of masculinity in, in young people. Where, why is our culture leeching masculinity from men? Because the devil is very clever. He realizes that the image of God is not just reason, it's also sexuality. And the Bible says that. First time it mentions the image of God, is, it says male and female. Mm-hmm. And if you deny those two halves of the image of God, it fades. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the strategy of, the, uh, of, of modern progressivism. So to take God, revolution take God out, about, and then you lose everything else. No, every other piece of structure. Yeah, because that's that's inherent to our our nature. We're so to speak bipolar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the man and the woman define themselves over against each other, uh, and and if both of those poles become muted, uh, if if there is no such thing as the masculine and the feminine, that means human nature itself, which is in fact man and woman. Uh, disappears and if you don't know yourself you don't know the image of god and that makes it much harder to know god and the devil then uses the very real mistakes and sins of of weak men and women right um he uses it to inform the minds uh, of people and say well in in those divisions in the patriarchy in the in the traditional roles, there is everything is oppression and, and wrongness mm-hmm. and, and hate and control. Yep. But, but that's simply yep. not true. <laughs> that's, just, that's just us being weak and, and failing at, at, the, at the task that was set for us, isn't it? But if truth itself is a human invention and determined by your will or by the will of your, your political group, uh, then to say that that's not true is not going to be effective. It's going to pass you by. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nietzsche's most radical idea of all, and uh, to my mind, the most satanic idea in the entire history of philosophy, is he denies, he explicitly denies something that every philosopher before him believed in. And he calls it the will to truth. He says, why truth? Why not the lie? Hmm. That's the philosophy of Satan. Mm-hmm. Now, Satan is very brilliant, and Nietzsche is very brilliant. And he's probably the most effective stylist in the the history of the German language. And even in English translations, that comes across. So he's thrilling. Hitler was thrilling, too. He was. Yes, I watched the I watched videos of his of his uh, his his uh, rallies. Oh, my gosh. People were fascinated with him. I suppose we might have been, too. Right. If we had been so unlucky enough as to be born Germans at that time. Especially if we're kind of dull to begin with and we're looking for excitement. There it is. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about Word on Fire is that it uh, it opposes what Bishop Barron calls beige Catholicism, uh, vague, sweet, comfortable, uh, something without edges. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he makes it exciting because it is exciting. It's the greatest story ever told. Which, which, let's face it, that's what most of us get, right, from the pews. Yeah. And it's... Yeah. And it, 
yeah, it's it's very it's it's very sad. Our 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 faith is uh, our faith is is glorious, <laughs> and it's and it's a challenge, and it's and what could appeal more to a young adventurous man than to take or up to his a young sword, woman. take up his sword, or go build a farm and and get a girl to go live with, live a wife to go live in it with him, and and make make a family and and conquer the world, right? Yes, and that's not uh, exclusive to men. Uh, throughout the animal kingdom, uh, women fight for their young much more than the men do. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. <laughs> Dr. Kraft, I could talk to you all day, but our time is up. And I'm glad you brought me back to Word on Fire. Um, I'm so glad that you did this this book collection. Um, maybe you can come on the show again after I've read all four books, because I'm very excited to do so. I just okay. want to mention before that uh, before we say goodbye, that you have another book coming out also. Can you remind me what it is? It's a, ref- a book of, with, with Word on Fire, I mean. I have it here somewhere and I can't find it. Food for the Soul, I found it. Is this, oh, that's, uh, that's reflections on, um, on the scripture readings for all three years of the liturgical cycle. Oh, wonderful. All three years? Yes. Oh, that's fabulous. So, uh, so it's well, maybe two thousand pages long, the three volumes. Oh, that's a lot amazing! Of stuff in there. That is a lot of stuff, but it sounds sounds really good to have. So, well, that's uh, so the scripture is very good, and and I think my best books are where I have the humility to jump up on uh, the shoulders of uh, of the saints and the doctors of the church uh, and interpret scripture through their eyes. It's not a terribly original book, oh. and I think that is a strength. Well, just talking to you for a few minutes, Dr. Kraft, makes me think that uh, anything that your finger touches must be wonderful. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And good luck with all your endeavors. Thank you. Uh, And God bless yours, too. Thank you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for sticking with us through the break. Next up, another Archbishop, this time Archbishop Nauman of Kansas City. Archbishop Nauman wrote a wonderful piece in The Leaven, which is the newspaper of the Archdiocese of Kansas City, which was also picked up at the National Catholic Register. If you'd like to read it, I highly recommend it. It's a response to what we've been seeing in the Synod of Synodality, that the church is going through and the way that the synod is giving a voice and a platform to those people in the church who think that our religion and specifically our religion's sexual mores, the ideas around sexuality and chastity, that, um, that our religion is now exclusionary that it specifically excludes in a way that is marginalizing and wrong people who who don't have heterosexual inclinations um, and who live a non-heterosexual lifestyle and act on that. Um, Archbishop Nauman has specifically named Cardinal McElroy of San Diego, who wrote a very complicated piece in the Jesuit journal America about how exactly the Synod is pointing out this, what he calls a flaw in the Catholic Church of of marginalization and making people, especially in the sexual department, who are divorced and remarried, for instance, or members of um, the non-heterosexual group, making them feel excluded and marginalized specifically, and he mentions it, not being allowed to go to to take communion to take part in the in the Eucharist. Welcome to the show Archbishop Nauman. Thanks very much Gracie. Good to be with you and your listeners. Well, it's good to be with you um, your excellency and especially because we uh, I think many of us out there sitting in the pews just regular churchgoers who love the church who who love what the church presents to the world as salvific truth as as a way for men and women to flourish truly in this life and of course to have life eternal. There are voices in the church um, that are that are getting more and more, uh, like I think getting better platforms and higher platforms. 
that don't experience the, the church's teaching that way, uh, the teachings that way, especially um, of, on the sexual morality front. You, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you, you wrote this wonderful piece in The Leaven, uh, where you attack this idea head on. So we wanted to, to have you on. Tell us, uh, Archbishop, the Synod, the Synod on Synodality, which is taking place now, has riled up uh, a lot of, uh, has given a platform again to some of these voices. Where do you think that they are going wrong, in essence? Well, you know, I think Pope Francis has been clear that the Synod's not about voting on doctrine and moral teaching. Um, and, and yet there are voices that are out there, I think, trying to do precisely that. And, um, you know, I think the, the whole process of listening, of being a more listening church, which I think Pope Francis uh, desires us to be, I think that's a very good thing. And, you know, I, I think from the process that we did here in the archdiocese, there, there were fruitful and good things coming from that. But um, the the way it's been orchestrated, though, was not just to talk to people within the church, but outside the church, and um, which, again, I mean, I think it's good for the church for us to understand what others are saying, but I don't think we should be surprised that the church is always going to be countercultural and um and but there seem to be an influential voices within the church and, and which i mentioned in the article uh that are actually uh, i think uh, uh suggesting that we change our moral teaching and that the, this is uh part of what the synod is to accomplish and you have the example of the german bishops and the synodal way which um Again, it's calling into question some fundamental moral teaching, and and even um, card, uh, the cardinal that's been chosen to be um, the the relator, the uh, one of the most influential people at the Senate, he's called into question the our very teaching about homosexual activity. So uh, I just feel. As a bishop, I have a responsibility to uh, to speak the truth, and especially in these areas which seem to me to be um, going against what Pope Francis called the Senate for, and also really confusing people. And as I mentioned in the article, I, I, I came of age in the 1960s. Um, it was a time similar in some ways to this time, I think, and there were there was a lot of moral confusion uh, that came out of that, and unfortunately it crept into the Church at that time. And, um, you know, I think Pope John Paul, uh, Pope Benedict, and now Pope Francis have tried to correct <clears throat> that and be clear on our moral teaching. Uh, I, I don't think we serve our people well or, or the world well if we simply echo the voices of the culture and not the the truth that the Church has been entrusted with. Your Excellency, um, young people these days, they're bombarded from birth with this idea that, as they say popularly, love is love, and that love, uh, homosexual um, acts, are just another kind of sexual expression, another kind of love expression, um, and that uh, you know, ideas about that being a different kind of love uh, or sexual expression that should be, should be, you know, can't, can't be in the same camp with heterosexual sexual expression is just outmoded and traditional ideas that have been superseded by sociological and, and scientific advancements that we've had in the, in the present. Um, so one, you, you mentioned in your article, Cardinal Hollerich of Luxembourg, who, who says just that. What? Why is he wrong? Why? Why haven't we, you know, come to a, a new understanding of sexuality that that puts aside those old strictures? You know, and Gracie, I think that this is one of the big confusions. Um, this love is love. Well, um, we all need love. We all need friendship, <laughs> and 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 so that's that's critical, and that's something God desires for us. But. The con when you confuse that and say, well, that means every type of sexual expression, um, that that's love, 
It really isn't. And, and it doesn't just apply to the homosexual community. We, the heterosexual community um, also with the hookup culture and mm-hmm. uh, uh, many of the, you know, I think the, the misuse of our human sexuality. And so the church has to be a voice for that. And, you know, I, I'm not sure what he what Cardinal Holerick is referring to when he says uh, that there's sociological data that makes the church's teaching outdated. Um, part of the problem with homosexual activity is our bodies weren't designed for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, we've, we've been in denial, I think, of this, and, and, and yet we see, we saw with the AIDS ep- epidemic, there are consequences when we use our bodies in ways that they were never intended to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've seen it, I think, more recently with this monkeypox. Um, but we, we're, we act like um, human, uh, the, the human body tells us. And that, that's why I think what Pope John Paul spoke about, the theology of the body and how the body itself has its own language. Um, so I, I think we have to have a great empathy for people with same-sex attraction Um they need friendship and authentic love, but that doesn't mean every form of a sexual expression is is valid or good or healthy. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I think that scientifically, it, it, everything is backed up by that, right? I mean, what promiscuity, uh, which is another ill <laughs> ill advised form of sexual expression, um, and wrong also is uh, is uh, leads to terrible sexually transmitted diseases. And, and and all sorts of other problems, and those things are sociologically proven. Um, so yes, I agree with you that those things haven't changed just because we are more modern people. Um, another thing, another person that you bring up is Cardinal McElroy uh, of San Diego, and, and and he wrote in in the journal in the Jesuit journal America um, about the way that he feels that these are sexual moral principles uh, of Catholicism of Christianity are exclusionary. And that the sin of of these sexual uh, these sexual sins are no different from any other sin that people commit, and and to deny uh, the Eucharist, for instance, to to people who are in an established same sex relationship, or or a men and women who have um, divorced and remarried outside of the church, or or just civilly married, is is denying them the grace of the Eucharist, that the grace of the sacrament that could help them, you know, grow out of this. Uh, this re- these relationships, or, or simply that they're not more sinful than anyone else who presents themselves for the Eucharist. Um, what's your answer to that, uh, Your Excellency? Well, uh, you know, I think the the reception of the Eucharist, uh, as it's always been understood, it, it's, yes, it, it's receiving the living Christ, which we all need, and we're all sinners. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, but it's also the reception of the Eucharist is uh, an act of faith in the Church itself who presents the Eucharist to us. And uh, there are certain um, moral teachings, if we, if we disagree fundamentally with some of the Church's teaching, uh, the very reception of communion becomes a lie. Uh, and and it's, it's not true, it's not authentic on our part. Um, and it's not just, you know, this isn't just confined to sexual sins. But um, so, yes, the, 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 it's true that the Eucharist is a, a, a medicine for, for sinners. But it, it also is this acknowledgement that we accept who Jesus Christ is and the Church. Um, and if we fundamentally uh, disagree with the central teaching um then really we can't receive the the Eucharist with authenticity, uh, and you know I think um, I think one of the errors I believe in Cardinal Macroy's is like these sexual sins are they're just inconsequential uh, they just affect the person. No, I mean the um, the results of the sexual revolution and the casualties of it are all around us. Uh, but we're in denial of it because it attacks uh, the family. It attacks the covenant of marriage. It, it, it denies uh, the importance of that, and it denies 
an essential part of our human sexual expression, which is its life-giving potential. Um, so these are these are very serious things, and they have effect beyond just the individual. You know, I'm glad you brought up uh, this uh, the the side effects. No, that the terrible consequences of the sexual revolution. Because last week the CDC released uh, an extremely troubling assessment of the mental health of young people. Um, sky sky high and and rising suicide rates uh, among boys and girls and especially teens um, and and just just terrible mental health uh, children in crisis all over the country and they made a special emphasis in saying that uh, children uh, young people who don't consider themselves heterosexual um, are are especially um, suffering uh, mental health problems. And they, the CDC, recommended that um, what the schools ought to do and what people ought to do is be more accepting and more encouraging of these of these lifestyles. So it, it seems almost uh, like what's happening in in the with the CDC is what's happening with us amongst amongst Catholics. I mean, here's the question: You have the casualties of the sexual revolution, the young people um, suffering more and more each day, and what some people in the church would like us to offer them is what the CDC offers them, which is more sexual revolution, like more sexual openness and less guardrails. When I believe, and I think you believe that um, what young people need are, are more guardrails that lead them safely into a flourishing human future and, and, and yeah. an eternal future. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, if, if I mean, the, the big lie in the culture is that you have to be sexually active to be happy and to fu- be fulfilled. And yet we see the, that that's not true all around us. If that were true, we should be the happiest culture and in, in, in civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet all of this data is telling us it's not making us happy. And, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think our public health officials have really failed us in a great way. Um, you know, look at what they did in terms of COVID. And they, they required young people, and this is part of the reason we have record levels of depression is we, we isolated young people and told them they couldn't even have social contact. But but when it came to AIDS, uh, where human lives were at risk, they didn't they they thought it was impossible to ask people not to be sexually active, mm-hmm. even though they knew it could be lethal. So I I think our public health officials um, they bought into the cultural lie, and they're really not advising us well do you think um that do you think that the that the synod on synodality uh are we at risk for having a real doctrinal revolution because when i read um cardinal mcelroy's piece um and when i read your response i i I think that seems to be there like the possibility of, of of a real doctrinal shift where where the these sexual mores that that are, that are designed to keep us safe and flourishing and and building our families could be up for grabs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I rest in the confidence that the Holy Spirit is <laughs> is in charge of the church and and won't allow us to go into fundamental error. But that's why I think it's important um, for for voices to to speak out. Um, you know, I think what the German bishops have been doing is very troubling, and I'm glad that bishops throughout the world have really, um, you know, challenged them on some of the, the the things that they're promoting out of their synodal way. And I and I think that bishops, I mean, we don't like to uh, we don't like to disagree publicly, but um, these are public statements that are being said, and I think. From my point of view, and I think um, many of the American bishops would agree with this, this is, this is uh, erroneous. And again, it doesn't, it, from what Pope Francis has said about his desires for the Synod, it doesn't correspond to what he has desired for the Synod to be. Well, I think that um, it behoves all of us Catholics to pray very hard that the Synod on Synodality lands in the right place and, and, and we, we actually do listen to the Holy Spirit and as a church and, and all the bishops do, the cardinals, and, and get us to the right spot.
So thank you so much, Archbishop Nauman, for, for joining us. And, and thank you for your wise words and, and your guidance and caution. And to our listeners, um, please read his piece in The Leaven, which is a newspaper of the Archdiocese of Kansas City or at the National Catholic Register. Thank you, Your Excellency. Thanks, Gracie. God bless. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'd like to wish all of our listeners a most joyful and blessed Easter, a day that caps all of our Lenten penances, our sorrowful reflections, our accompaniment of our Lord through that valley of tears that he chose to share with us, and it caps it with that glorious moment of resurrection, something that we can look forward to for ourselves and our loved ones. We've been watching The Passion of the Christ and there's that wonderful moment in the very last few seconds of the movie where you see, after seeing Jesus being beaten to a pulp and bloodied and suffering like uh, no mortal man has suffered because he was so good. And to do that to the, the, beautiful, the beauty and the truth of God is, is beyond understanding. That moment when he comes to life again in that tomb and the sun shines on him and his skin is perfect and beautiful and he's strong and renewed and he rises and walks. To all of those who are mourning a loved one, as I have been in the last three months or four months since my father died, I know that all of us focus on that moment of resurrection. And that is what God promised us, and that is what he delivers on Easter. So may you have a blessed and joy-filled Easter, and may all your sadnesses be, be wiped from your heart and the tears from your eyes. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to wish you and your family happy Easter. As we enter into the consequential conversation the Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, wants to have with each of us. He wants to meet us like he met Mary Magdalene in the garden and call us by name. He wants to converse with us like he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, to make our hearts burn as he explains the word of God to us and helps us to recognize him in the breaking of the bread. He wants to speak with us like he spoke with the fearful apostles in the upper room, to wish us peace, to show us his hands and his side, to impart to us the Holy Spirit, and to send us out from the upper room like he sent them as witnesses to his resurrection. Jesus ultimately wants to change our lives this Easter and help us to enter more deeply than ever before into his triumph of light over darkness, joy over sadness, love over hatred, life over death. For this to occur, however, we can't live Easter in a routine way. It's just another important day that will expire in 24 hours. We can't live it as just an octave or a 50-day season. We really have to let what Easter means sink deeply within us so that it changes our thinking, being, doing, and loving. We have to enter into the Easter metamorphosis. The Easter proclamation, popularly called the exaltet from its first word in Latin, describes this metamorphosis. What some have called the Gospel of Easter or the Easter Kerygma is sung at the beginning of the Easter Vigil after the blessing of the Easter fire and the blessing and lighting of the Paschal candle. The church has been singing it for 15 to 17 centuries at the start of our Easter celebration to try to sum up, despite the poverty of human language, the world-changing importance of Christ's Easter triumph. I hope that you have a chance to hear it by attending the Easter Vigil, which is the most important and beautiful liturgy of the whole year, which the church pulls out all the stops in praise and thanksgiving to God for the gift of salvation Christ has brought us. I'd like to highlight a couple elements of it to describe the consequence of the conversation, our encounter with the risen Christ, is supposed to have. First consequence is joy. The exalted, the deacon, or if he's not present, the priest, sings with joy like a trumpet of salvation, the church's jubilation at Christ the King's triumph, encouraging us to make the holy sanctuaries of our churches shake with joy, as with ardent love of mind and heart, we praise God for what he has done. We sing of how in the sacred triduum of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter, Jesus fulfilled the ancient Jewish Passover rites. These, then, we sing, are the feasts of Passover, in which is slain the Lamb, the one true Lamb, whose blood anoints the doorposts of believers. We reenact, so to speak, the procession of the Paschal, with the procession of the Paschal candle, symbolizing Christ and his light, how God led the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt behind the pillar of fire. And we sing of how Christ has liberated us from more than slavery to Pharaoh, but has broken the prison bars of death and rose victorious, leading us on an exodus from sin into the life of grace and communion with his saints. The first revolution in our life, encountering the risen Lord, is meant to have is abundant joy at his resurrection, at his triumph, at how he wants us to share in his victory. The second consequence 
is how we're supposed to view the sins that led to Christ's crucifixion. In the exalted, the church sings something that at first might seem borderline blasphemous. After praising God for his humble care, love, and charity beyond all telling, that led him to give away his son to ransom us, we sing about the truly necessary sin of Adam, the happy fault that earned so great, so glorious a redeemer. The phrase, O Felix Culpa in Latin, or O happy fault in English, is normally attributed to St. Augustine, but it's really a paraphrase of what he said. Saintly Bishop of Hippo actually wrote, For God judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit any evil to exist. It's likely that he was influenced not just by the experience of the multitude of sins of his youth that eventually and happily brought him such a great redeemer and led him to write about it in his famous confession, but by the preaching of the saintly bishop who had helped him convert in Milan. St. Ambrose would often from different angles stress this theme, something that may have helped St. Augustine realize that God wanted to transform the manure of his past into fertilizer for new spiritual growth. St. Ambrose taught in one of his biblical commentaries, the Lord knew that Adam would fall and then be redeemed by Christ. O happy ruin, which has brought such a beautiful reparation. Elsewhere he stated, we have sinned more, have gained more, because by your grace of mercy, Lord, you make us more blessed than our absence of fault does. In one of the prefaces of the Ambrosian liturgical rite, the priest sings to God, You bent down over our wounds and healed us, giving us a medicine stronger than our afflictions, a mercy greater than our fault. In this way, even sin, by virtue of your invincible love, served to elevate us to the divine life. We can examine the scriptural foundations for this truly shocking Easter affirmation. St. Paul told us in his letter to the Romans, All things... And here we can think of our sins, faults, and failings. Work together for the good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Jesus himself would say more than once in the great chapter 15 of St. Luke's Gospel about the lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son, heaven rejoices for more for one repentant sinner than for 99 who never needed to repent. We see that truth played out in Simon the Pharisee's house when Jesus defends the sinful woman who washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Against Simon's objections, Jesus affirmed that the one who has been forgiven little loves little, but the one who has been forgiven much loves much. We grow to love God in correspondence to how much we've experienced his mercy. And the more we receive his mercy, paradoxically, the bigger the celestial celebration. This is a beautiful, life-changing truth we have to confront as we prepare for what the exalted call the sacred night on which our Lord Jesus Christ passed from death to life. God seeks to make all our sins happy ones by bringing us all to experience the healing love of the Redeemer, who not only forgives them, but transforms them into a memory of mercy, an ongoing encounter with his love. In a sense, rather than cutting off dead branches and throwing them away, the experience of God's mercy is that he raises those lifeless branches from the dead and makes them capable of bearing even greater fruit than they were prior to their demise. So we prepare for the Easter Vigil and Easter Sunday, so we get ready to help our parishes shake with joy as we rev up the engines of our hearts to praise, thank, adore, love, celebrate, and preach our great Redeemer who came to make even our sins happy faults and transform even crucifixion into eternal victory. We grasp that he doesn't want to allow this mystery to remain outside of us. He left the tomb, risen from the dead, ultimately to be able to enter into us in Holy Communion as we receive his risen body and blood so that we might share intimately in his resurrection. Oh, happy and necessary sins that have brought us such nourishment so that we who eat his flesh and drink his blood will, as he says, live forever. That's even more a reason why the church will rock with joy, singing Alleluia in anticipation of heaven, where with the angels and the saints, we one day hope to celebrate our great King's triumph without ceasing at the eternal banquet. Happy Easter. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 